Sometimes, every now and again, do you find yourself on a slow day wondering, why am I here? What's life all about and what's the meaning of it all? Sometimes when I'm sitting in the office on a slow day, a bit bored, trying to look busy or being stumped on a problem, um, I wonder why God's put me here, here in this office in Hall Green in the shaky porter cabin. Um, how can I serve God best? Um, and am I living life to the full? In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I want to explore with you what having life to the full in the eyes of God looks like and how God had intended us to achieve this. To have life to the full, we have to understand what we're doing here, our purpose. I'd hypothesize that when we're fulfilling the purpose of our life, we are having life to the full. We need to know why we're here to find our purpose. Now, this is a, an age-old question that many philosophers have debated over the years. And let's have a look at the, uh, a few of the older ones. Uh, Platonism. Plato says that the meaning of life is in attaining the highest form of knowledge. So he's saying that if we fill our heads with knowledge, we'll achieve the fullness that life has to offer. It, it seems a bit empty to me. Um, Stoicism. Living according to reason and virtue is to be in harmony with the universe's divine order. So it's saying, do what's right to make sense. Is that what it's all about? Again, it, it, it seems closer to the point, but it doesn't seem quite all there yet. Uh, nihilism. Nothing is of value. Morals are valueless. They only serve a society's false ideals. That's a de bit depressing, really. May as well just curl up and die right here. Um, and the fun one, absurdism. There's no point in trying to find the meaning of life. It doesn't exist. So what are we doing here then? It doesn't answer any questions. Do you think that why we're here is as complex as Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he says, there's a theory which states that if ever anybody discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. There's another theory which states that this has already happened. Or it's as simple as the envelope handed to Michael Palin at the end of Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Well, it's nothing very special. Um, try to be nice to people, avoid eating fat. Read a good book every now and again, get some walking in. Um, try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. I don't think we'd quite find a satisfactory solution so far. If we had, we'd all be able to go and get our tea and coffee early. So instead, let's take a different look. Is there more to life than this? Are we on a conveyor belt? Are we born and then we'd get taught stuff and then we rebel? Then we find our identity, find love, have kids, get a minivan, kids leave, midlife crisis, we get a sports car, and then we retire and then die. The Bible says this is not the case. We're not on a production line. Um, we're unique and created individually. Listen to what David has to say in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Before one of them came to be, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God put us together. He put some time into making us. We didn't just drop off at the end of the production line or we weren't just delivered by a stork. God knit us together. God gives us our meaning and our purpose. 
because we've been created by him and for him to bring him glory. So being created by God means that God must have given us something to do. Um, Jesus was talking to some Pharisees and some teachers of the law, and he was asked, what is the most important commandment? Now these people were trying to catch him out, and, uh, and, and he gives this perfect answer of, in, in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. By saying this, Jesus suddenly shifts the focus from us onto God and others. We need to find, look outside ourselves to find meaning and fulfillment. So let's look at the first one, love the Lord. I became a Christian when I was about five. I grew up in a Christian family, and I prayed the prayer to invite Jesus into my life. Then a few years later, when I was about 12, I, I watched a documentary on drugs and the effect it had on people's lives. Um, I broke down in tears and knew that I didn't want to be part of a world that was like this. I saw that we all needed a saviour, and that that's when I wanted to commit my life to, come, to be a part of Christ. Now, that was 11 years ago, so why am I a Christian still today? <clears throat> it makes sense. It's a good way of life. It's the only way I can see the world can function. The Bible is truth. Historical evidence backs it up. Um, many writers have written the Bible over centuries, and they all tie in together. Um, I've seen God move, heard him speak, felt his touch too many times to ignore him. And the most important thing is that I know that I'm a sinner and need salvation. It seems common sense to me, and it, it makes me wonder why more people aren't saved, and why people don't see it. Clearly, becoming a Christian is a huge thing. Baptism symbolizes dying to the old life and accepting a, a new one. It, it's not a, a thing that you can take lightly. There's someone who we've been talking to at work, and uh, his view on life is everything is going out on a Saturday night, getting absolutely wasted and sleeping around, and that's his life, and that, that's, that's the best that life can offer for him. He can't see that becoming a Christian and kind of giving that up is any better than what he's doing at the moment. Um, yes, there's things that we do and don't do because, we, because of love, but they generally make for good lives and societies, and he just doesn't see that. The Bible says that we shouldn't commit adultery, for example. Um, the obvious consequences of adultery is that it, it hurts ourselves, our wives, our children, and others involved. It leads to broken down marriages, unwanted pregnancies, and the risk of infections. Most of God's commands would therefore be accepted as common sense standards of living by almost every society because of the negative consequences when the rules are not observed. Therefore, instead of seeing the Bible as a rule book, we need to see it as a user guide. I love gadgets. It's no, it's no secret. And when I get a new gadget, like probably most of the men here, I'm quite bad at reading the instructions. But I've learned the hard way that when you read the instructions, you find out so many more things about the thing that you're playing with. Um, so, for example, you can't use your phone as a hammer. It doesn't work. The user guide tells you that. Um, with life, we need to study the guide, the Bible, and find out all, all of life's features and what we should and shouldn't do. The Old Testament is made up of books of the law. When Jesus came, he gave us a new commandment and told us that we weren't under this law anymore, but we're just under this one commandment of love. You know, Christians can sometimes set a bad example. 
that doesn't help non-Christians see all the good things that Christianity and Christ have to offer. Um, images come to mind of Westboro Baptist Church protesting outside the funerals of dead soldiers or just people who give off negative attitudes. Um, a pastor in America went out and interviewed some college students about their opinions on Jesus and the church. And this is what he came up with. When I think of Jesus, I definitely, I mean, I believe in Jesus and I think he was a very inspirational, his teachings were very inspirational. And I believe he existed, but I believe that the church corrupted the teachings of Christ. Um, I'm all about Jesus. <laughs> I love Jesus, um, and I think that his teachings and his beliefs were pure. Jesus seems like, uh, if, if what the, if the stories are true, he seems like a pretty alright guy. Uh, you have to admire anyone who would die for what they believe in. That's the first thing I think of. Okay. I think of uh, pseudo-Christian people trying to tell you what they believe in and what you should believe in. It's the first thing I think of. Well, I think of this thing that Gandhi said, I would have become a Christian except I never met one. And, I mean, I haven't vet, met very many true Christians in my life. Like, I, myself, am trying to become one, but I just... It seems that the dogma within the church just contradicts what Jesus actually intended. For the most part, I think of people who should just be taken out back and shot because they don't apply the, the love is everything message of Jesus. And then I think of, you know, the like five to ten Christians who I've met who are actually on the right page. I found that really interesting when I watched it. Um, we get some general themes coming through. Jesus good, Christians bad. Uh, the guy at the end who said that we should all be taken out and shot, he shows a little glimmer of hope at the end there when he says that he's seen a few Christians that are doing it right. In society today, we can no longer expect people to have a, a basic understanding of Christianity. We can no longer ex expect them just to take our word for it, to accept what um, the Bible teaches unquestion unquestioningly. Um, we need to show people what being a Christian is really about. We need to be little Christ, show, show the world how Jesus is and his values and principles. Now, I think this church is spot on with its outreach and its um, community action. But I think the area of improvement comes from within ourselves. Um, if you look at how many people the church can hit, it, it, it's a very small number compared to the number of people that we come into contact with day in, day out. We really need to be focusing our efforts on showing Jesus to, um, to the non-Christians that we see at work and in our leisure activities. We can sometimes be seen as having a, a closed book and satisfying life. And we need to really, um, we need to break through that and, and show people that we do have a fulfilling life. Now God's view of a fulfilling life isn't the same as the world. When I'm at work, I'm designing control systems for jet engines. This may seem like a step to being successful in the eyes of the world. It may not, of course, but God doesn't see it like that. It's, it, God doesn't see that as having a fulfilling life. Conversely, I played squash the other night with my brother, and uh, after that I was dripping with sweat, wearing my hoodie, my tracky bottoms, driving a knackered old green car, and uh, was walking around Tesco. 
if someone from a past had seen me, someone who I went to school with, they may have gone, you seem so clever at school, what's, what's happened to you now? <laughs> this isn't a fulfilling life in the eyes of God, and it's certainly not a fulfilling life in the eyes of the world. God's view of a fulfilling life isn't the opposite of the world's. We need to take a holistic view of life. We need to explore all life has to offer. Things that are outside the Christian bubble aren't all bad. Um, I enjoy doing like outdoor activities. I enjoy kite surfing and, and cycling and skiing and riding my motorbike and spending time with friends. Last week, we even went out to Broad Street and had a drink. Um, we did leave when people started staggering around rather than dancing, but, uh, but we had a great time. We can enjoy things that the world has to offer as long as we're sensible about it. We need to, we need to use our common sense. You don't take a recovering alcoholic to a pub. Um, we need to not put ourselves in positions of undue temptation. So last week when, when we were out, we were out with largely a group of Christians, so I knew I could be fully accountable to them, and that's part of the enjoyment that came, that came from it. Sometimes we can start with good intentions and kind of waver off track a bit. Um, I've known a few people who've dated non-Christians, a few Christians who've dated non-Christians, and they start off by saying, yeah, I'm a strong enough Christian and I, I should be able to convert them, but quite often the, the non-Christian aspect of the relationship just grows and grows and grows and kind of takes over that relationship. We need to know our own limits in situations that we put ourselves in and, um, and, and keep our focus on God. We can enjoy other things in life and even use some of them as acts of worship to God. For example, in the film Chariots of Fire, it's about a Christian runner called Eric Liddell who um, held the 400-meter record. And what he said is, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He ran to the glory of God. When, when he was running, he felt closest to God. It can be the same for us when we're doing recreational things, when we're enjoying ourselves outside of church and maybe with non-Christians, maybe with Christians, we can feel close to God. We can give glory back to God through utilizing the skills and abilities that he's given us. The most important thing, though, is don't prioritize anything above God. That's the first commandment Jesus said was the most important. The Israelites forgot this several times. They ended up worshipping idols and, um, and, and going away from God. Now, the Babylonians aren't coming to invade us, but we do get captive by the things that we worship. To get the most out of life, we need to study the Bible and find out what features God put in place for us. If God put us together, he should know best. Now, looking at the second command, love our neighbour as ourselves. To do this, we need to strive to be like Jesus. We need to look to him for his example. Um, Jesus went out of his way to help anybody who he came into contact with. When he was uh, asked again by teachers of the law, who, who is my neighbor, he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure many of you will, will know. And this basically said that your neighbor is anybody you come into contact with, absolutely anybody. could be your worst enemy, it could be someone who's really mean to you, really nasty to you. We need to love them as ourselves. We need to think more outwardly. We're created as communal beings, so we need to always bear in mind, what can I do to help others? We need to think how we can make people's lives a little better.
In order to live lives like Jesus, we need to live by the Spirit. As Christians, we're told we're not under law, and therefore, Paul tells us we have freedom to choose between living according to the Spirit or living according to sinful nature. In Galatians 5, he writes, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. It's clear to see by any standards which one of these is better to live by. Let's have a look at what the, spirits of, uh, what the fruits of the Spirit look like. So love. It's, it's the selfless, selfless love that we model on the ultimate love that Jesus showed for us. We can show that to other people and we can show it to God. Joy. Now this isn't the really deep-seated joy that you see in some Christians that's so somber and so deep down that no one ever sees it. It's a joy that we share with the world. It, it makes us attractive to the world. It, I mean, who would you rather spend time with, someone who's joyful or grumpy? Peace. This is more than just not waging war on another country. This is, um, this is kind of like an active word. It's not a passive word. We can't sit back and be peaceful all the time. We have to act in a way that helps us find common ground, resolves disputes. Patience. The definition of patience is to endure and suffer. Being a Christian and living your life for Jesus is not easy. We're promised to go through trials and temptations, and Jesus says it's not going to be easy. So the quality of patience means that we have to kind of stick with it. Kindness. We need to have integrity in relationships with others. We need to build people up, not knock them down. Goodness. I like the definition for this. It's the quality of having quality. <laughs> Faithfulness. We need to be loyal to God, stick to his commands, and be wholly devoted to him. Gentleness. Take care not to harm others. Well manage your emotions and don't be rash. This can be quite a difficult one for men to kind of get their head around. We almost see gentleness as not being macho, not being manly. But it's not. We can be, we can be gentle and still be real men. <laughs> Self-control. We need to assert control over our desires, our temptations, our lusts, our emotions and our feelings. We need to be able to tell ourselves no and make it stick. Proverbs 25 says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. If a city had broken down walls, anything could get in. They couldn't defend their, their city against anything. And it's the same in our lives. If we don't have strong walls and strong holes, then, then people will, uh, bad stuff will get into our lives. Us living our lives out to the full by the Spirit puts us in a better situation to carry out the Great Commission, the final thing Jesus said to his followers before he ascended to heaven. Um, in Matthew 29, uh, 28, Therefore, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. By choosing to live by the Spirit, we are inheriting the kingdom, moving it forward right here on earth. This brings glory to God, and it shows love to the world. In loving our neighbor as ourselves, we need to show them the best way to live. We need to share Jesus with them. Jesus is the best thing that happened to us. It's certainly the best thing that happened to me. Um, Salvation of the people that we come into contact with depends wholly on us and God working through us. The salvation that God offers to us through his son Jesus dying on the cross is the greatest act of love we can show to people and it's the greatest act of love that has ever occurred. In closing, I'm going to leave you with this. Someone once imagined a fascinating conversation that Jesus had with the archangel Gabriel just after Jesus returned to heaven after the resurrection. It shows just how important our purpose here on earth is. And Gabriel asked him, well, how did it go? Did you complete your mission and save the world? And Jesus said, well, yes and no. I modeled a godly life for about 30 years. I persuaded a few thousand Jews in a little corner of the Roman Empire to follow me. I died for the sins of the world. I burst from the tomb to persuade a little circle of frightened disciples that my life and my story are God's way to save the world. And then I gave those 120 to the Holy Spirit, and I left them to finish the task. You mean, Gabriel said, your whole plan to save the world depends on a little ragtag bunch of former prostitutes and fishermen and tax collectors? That's right, Jesus said. But what if they fail, Gabriel persisted in growing alarm. What's your backup plan? And Jesus quietly said, there is no backup plan. We're it. Let's pray.